Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. On behalf of the Joan B. Kroc Institute for Peace and Justice, I want to thank all of you and welcome you to our first distinguished lecture of the season, which takes place during an ongoing forum, Women, Media, Revolution. And if you are available tomorrow, we still have one day. It's right here in the theater. It's free and open to the public, and I would behoove you to join us for that. This is all part of our Women Peacemaker program, which, thanks to generous funding from the Fred J. Hansen Foundation, brings four women peace builders from all around the globe to the University of San Diego each fall. And I'd like to introduce this group to you right now. They're here in the front row, and so I'll ask them to each to stand as I, as I name them. Our two, 2011 Women Peacemaker cohort is Ms. Wahu Kara of Kenya. <laughs> Ms. Manjula Pradeep of India. <laughs> Dr. Rashad Zaidon from Iraq. and Ms. Claudette Verle from Haiti. <laughs> Zainab Salbi is a peace builder, activist, and social entrepreneur. She's the founder, and up until recently, the chief executive officer of Women for Women International, which has worked since the Bosnian War in the early 1990s with over 300,000 women survivors of conflict to rebuild their lives and communities. Women for Women International has been recognized. It has won the Conrad Hilton Humanitarian Prize, arguably the world's most important prize for humanitarian action. She's been recognized by the Clinton Global Initiative, Forbes Magazine, the World Economic Forum, and many others for her leadership. Ms. Salvi is also the author of two books, Between Two Worlds, Escape from Tyranny, Growing Up in the Shadow of Saddam, and The Other Side of War, Women's Stories of Survival and Hope. And she will be signing books in our rotunda immediately following our Distinguished Lecture Series. So without further interference, I want you to please join me in welcoming Ms. Zainab Salbi for Distinguished Lecture Series. Good evening, everyone. I'm Diana Cutlow. I'm the Senior Program Officer here at the Institute for the Distinguished Lecture Series. And I'm really honored tonight to be able to speak with Zainab Salbi, founder of Women for Women International, which has gone from being a very small personal uh, cause for Zainab to a $35 million organization that is helping women in over eight countries. Um, I'd like to begin with the story of the founding Zainab and how the organization has managed to grow the way that it has. Um, well, the organization started in 1993 directly in, as a response to the war in Bosnia. I had uh, recently arrived in America or been living in America. I, I came from Iraq in 1990, and I went back to school in America or college. Um, and I, it was the first month, the same month, that I learned about the Holocaust. Um, and I learned about people saying never again and all of these things because I honestly never learned that before. That same month, I le- it, the, the cover of Time magazine and Newsweek uh, was actually of concentration camps and rape camps in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And images very similar to that of the Holocaust. And, 
And as I was learning, never again, it was happening again. So I just happened to be someone who learned the two issues or the two facts all in the same month and connected them very fast. Um, I was 23. I was, you know, um, an immigrant, did not have much, and a newlywed at the time. Um, but I knew that we needed to do something. We needed to, like, well, we said never again, and it's happening again, and it's the same images, so we have to act. And at that time, there were yellow pages. There were no, uh, there was no internet, if you, though some people will remember here. Uh, <laughs> but I turned in the yellow pages, and I called women's organizations, and I said, I want to volunteer to help Bosnian women. They were in rape camps. They were given numbers, and when their numbers were called, they had to go into another room and get gang raped anytime from a month to nine months or a year period. Girls as young as nine years old and women as old as eight years old were raped in these camps. So there was no question. Uh, and long story short, uh, I was connected to the Unitarian Church as a result, um, who said, come and present to us what you have in mind. Because... You know, when I heard the other group saying, well, come after six months or whatever, I came up with the idea that we need to sponsor women. And we match women in the United States with women survivors of the war in Bosnia and uh, facilitate an exchange of letters and pictures between the two of them and facilitate the money. You know, it was at the time $20, now it's $30 a month. Um, so that was a very simple idea. So I went to the church and I borrowed my father-in-law's suit, a briefcase, to pretend that I'm, you know, a professional woman, because I was 23 years old and not have any work experience or very limited one. Um, and I presented to the board of directors of the church and they called me after and they said, we'll support you for a year. Um, and that was the best gift anybody has given me. It was a group of people that I did not know, trusting a 23-year-old kid who said, we'll support you, and for a year only, and in that year, you are to go and register yourself as an organization and get the tax exam status and all of these things. And it's, that's how it started, really. It was, you know, everyone would tell me, do something, and I was like, oh, okay, we have to do something. But the real start of it, the first time, two things that changed it, because up until then, I was, about to go, I was going about my life, and... The two things that changed is the first meeting I had with the first woman I met in Croatia. Her name is Aisha. It was my 9 a.m. meeting that first day I'm there. And Aisha just talked about how she, the, the, the devastation. She was in the, in the camp. She was in one of the camps. She was released only in prisoner's exchange. She did not know where they were about of her husband and two children. And someone had asked her to come to the, to the U.S. and testify in front of the Senate and Congress. But the same group who asked her, who invited her to come, did not ask her if she wanted to go to the doctor while she was here or to go shopping for new shoes while she was there. And she was crying, and I remember the new shoes part. And it wasn't the material aspect as much as the... She's like, I had no shoes. You know, I came with a slipper in here. And that there was a lack of sensitivity of my reality to just come testify and go back. And I just remember going to the hotel that night with my former husband and the founder, or a co-founder of Women for Women, and we cried the whole day. And I just realized that 
I am dedicating my life to that. So that's how it started. It started with friends folding brochures with me and women from all over the United States calling and saying, we want to join, realizing very fast that I wasn't the only one who was really interested. But it really started um, in a, in a, with no agenda as much as just to help. Now, there's a sense of solidarity in that approach, the letter writing, the relationship that's established between women on both sides of that relationship. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that solidarity grew into other kinds of programs, into skills training and other programs? I want to take a moment to talk about the solidarity because it's, 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 it's easy for us to talk about it. It's much, I don't know how to explain the impact of it. Um, because we, I know we're talking about media and the impact of media. And one of the first major coverage we had was actually um, through a wire, AP wire service of a reporter who followed the exchange of letters between the two women, between two women, one in Michigan who was writing about her garden and about her flowers and about the smell and the roses and all of these things. And the other one was in Bosnia. And the one in Bosnia at the time, she was writing about lining up in the water supply line and the sniper shooting at the line. And she would stay along with everyone because she had no choice of going empty-handed. And she would talk about people dying in front of her and she would stay because she has no choice but to get water. And they were very different letters. So the solidarity part is beyond solidarity. It wasn't actually the solidarity that was being provided as much as in the letters, when we, sh- when we followed the letters. What the American woman was providing is that window of hope. You know, it was just that window of hope that where Samia, the Bosnian woman, was living through her garden. And what Samia provided to the American woman was at least what she provided to me. Let me talk about what she, because I got to see the letters when we did the articles. Because in one of the pieces, she said, I lost the I in me. And so it's a, it's a, I think she provided, at least for me, that sense of the I and in me, and, and how different is that when we are in peaceful situation and we, to a great extent, in control of it, and how that, is, that control is lost in a war and that you lose the I in me and you become just someone who just survived, who just trying to survive. So I think it is a solidarity not to say we are here for you as much as it was for the longest time, and it still is, um, putting perspectives over both our lives, the one in here and the one in there, and in a way helping us both you know, be more grateful for what we have. Um, in terms of the other programs, so it started, honestly, because I had some conversations this today. First, I said, this is only for raped women. And the raped, and the raped woman, they're like, uh, we're not going to line up in an organization that says this is only for a raped woman because <laughs> you're just going to stigmatize us more, so no. So I was like, oh, okay, that's a good lesson. You know? and, and then, of course, in the process, I learned victimhood comes in all shapes. It doesn't come with only raped women. It doesn't come with only widows. It doesn't come. I learned victimhood comes as simple as a woman who saw her her house burned down in front of her, and when she talks about it, the pain of that 
uh, of that loss is as painful as anything else. I couldn't compare which one is more of a victim. Then I said, um, well, we sponsor and we give you financial support limitless. And I remember a Bosnian woman jumped in our, like stormed in our office. And she said, it's not fair. It's not fair that you help three, one woman for three years and you could have helped three women for three years. I was like, she's right, absolutely. So we changed the program too so we can rotate. I also learned, you know, for the longest time I was so rigid about no smoking policy in our office and in the women's centers. And then I realized the women were fidgeting and like not, you could not be patient for half an hour of like talking about women's rights. And at the end I was like, okay, fine, just smoke a cigarette, whatever, you know. <laughs> because honestly, people in war don't just talk to them about cigarettes. Like just give me anything, you know. <laughs> So I learned, it was a humbling process, but then I learned a few things that I want to share. One is, we see people in war as only victims, and in a way we perpetuate their victimhood by the way we send aid and we send charity. It's more like, oh, poor thing, just if you just stay in the tent, I will feed you and send you my secondhand clothes, and it doesn't work like this that actually people want their integrity and dignity and it's no different than any other person. And my first awareness for that was the office next to our office in Sarajevo was a psychologist's office. And I noticed the women, when they get out of his office, they're like, you know, talking and engaged and all of that. And when they enter our office, they like act physically like the victims, like... (laughs) And I was like, oh my God they think that's the image they have to carry you know, in order to get aid. And we're giving exactly the opposite message in here. So right now, if you go to any of Women for Women's offices, you actually see gorgeous, beautiful women always dressed up. And I always ask my staff, because we all prejudice, and so am I. And so I was like, are you sure she's poor? And they always take me to their homes, and they show me their poverty, just to make sure but that the organization shifted in its image, that instead of being a victim when you come, come here as a survivor, as a beautiful, strong woman who have just survived so far, and we're going to help you stand on your feet. And the last and most important is the ability to earn money and get a job. Yes, war destroys everything. War is actually, you know, it takes the, it's like life, it snaps the rug from underneath your feet without like all of a sudden and you don't know why and how. Um, So what people are eager the most is to get that job so they can feed their children and they have just the integrity of having the roof and the bicycle and, you know, and and the food, you know, just to live with dignity. And rather than charity... I really, really believe in just just the treatment with respect, that this is not going to be charity. This is going to be a breathing room for only a year. You're going to learn a right. You're, you're going to get your rights, and you know all about your rights, so you know what access you have. And you're also going to, we teach them vocational and business skills so they can get a job, and tangible vocational and business skills. You know, most women, particularly poor women, unfortunately, in many parts of the world, when you say, what do you want to learn? They say, tailoring and hairdressing. You know, we've been conditioned that we only can know tailoring and hairdressing. And I'm like, how many tailors you can have in the world? You can't. And, they, you know, and the best of them are men, actually. It's true, you know. <laughs> Not to say anything about my gender, but it's just whatever it is, you know. So, so we actually geared, shifted strategy. 
where are the jobs? And we're going to go and teach vocational skills where the jobs are. So I just came from Rwanda. We teach women bricks making, um, carpentry, um, shoe repairs, farming. Well, farming women are dominant in the farming, you know, but food processing. Get something practical where they can actually get a job. Sometimes tailoring and hairdressing is practical. Sometimes it's not. But do what's practical so she can earn a living. Now, we've been talking a lot in the last day or so about the exclusion of women from media, but you've already touched on two instances where media has had a tremendous impact on what you do, both what motivated you, the story in time, being informed, and also the building of your organization through this exchange of letters and the way it was publicized. How have you been able to use media effectively to communicate about these issues, to build awareness of the challenges and the solutions? So we have been blessed. There, we by getting a lot of media, but particularly been very blessed by by appearing on the Oprah Winfrey Show ten times, and at the organization say God bless Oprah. <laughs> My dream to have a statue for her in the middle of the organization, you know, um, because every time we appeared on the show, almost every time we raised between. $2.5 million to $5 million within about a couple of the first couple of days of responses. And that means tens of thousands of women joining by, by donating $30 a month, you know? Um, so that's the first time we... So this is talking about power of media. When the uh, first appearance on Oprah was in September 2000, we were helped, our budget was um, $600,000 and we were supporting 700 women. Or the reverse, is, you know, but either 600 women and $700,000, I don't remember. But it was these two numbers. Um, 10 years later, well now 11 years later, 300,000 women, $35 million. And it's correlated to Oprah's appearances. Um, and then all the wave that she creates with it, you know, so you get on other shows and you get on other media. So it has been, in terms of, this is very practical, this is not even, you know, this is just very, very practical impact. It has made a, a huge difference, you know, for a nonprofit that is trying to raise awareness about the issue, so you can try to raise donations for the issue, and the the only, the most efficient, best way for your cause is the media. And it made a huge difference. And you can't buy that. You, I mean, even an ad would not do it. Then we, sh- not shifted, then we added uh, the social component, the social media component. And we actually brought a team from AOL. <laughs> you know, so because we're like, well, we need to know how do we utilize social media component. And for the longest time, our chief marketing officer was an AOL person, and a lot of our current team are from AOL. Of how do we, in other words, take the for, you know the the for-profit sector experience and apply it to the non-profit sector with particularly social media uh, or internet and all of these things. So it had it's in every um, rate of the organization's expansion has been related directly to a media coverage. And I would say it makes a, a, a big difference. But other than that, I also want to share a story that um, the impact of media, not in terms of raising awareness only and, and encouraging actions, but also in terms of acting with ourselves and changing our reality. So this afternoon I was saying um, an Iraqi woman from a very religious province in Karbala 
um, very, very religious province who has been abused for 20 years, the woman, in, in her marriage. And she decided to leave her husband. And, and I was talking to her lawyer, pro bono lawyer, and was trying to help her. And she said, why are you leaving him after 20 years? And the Iraqi woman said, she was describing his abuse. And she said, but why after 20 years are you leaving him? And she said, I saw it on a Turkish soap opera. I don't have to tolerate it. So I, in this experience, in, you know, and this woman got herself a job, rented a room, and filed for divorce, and acted. So I think the media is hugely important, not in terms of also raising awareness, but in terms of raising awareness about our own reality. So this media also takes you from the grassroots to the government level. You know, you can not only influence a woman in her home, but you can influence policy. You can influence what's happening at the highest levels of government through stories, through media. How have you moved your organization from only dealing with direct assistance to women to getting them more involved in leadership in post-conflict situations? When it comes to women's issues, now we know from Women, War, and Peace um, that we see war from only a frontline perspective. We see war as fighting and army and troops and politics. And we rarely, I, I would say really rare, re- rarely, do we see war from a backline perspective, which is what women encounter. So if the front line is led by men, the back line is led by women, and they're both real, and they're both true. But, and they both make the full story, not only one. And the backline perspective has everything to do because, you know, life doesn't stop in war. Life continues in war. And I feel every time I say that, people are like, really? I was like, yeah, you know, we go and fall in love and go to birthday parties and get divorced and, you know, go to school and have parties and actually a lot of fun parties, you know. Um, but, you know, but, you, know you, you keep life going in the midst of war and eat and go to jobs and go to school and keep the factory opening. And that is something that is led by women. So we miss on that. Now, same thing when it happens to be negotiations for peace. Only less than 3% of all signing of peace agreements include women's signatures in it. There is a complete exclusion of women's perspective in the signing of peace. So peace becomes, for me, about the ending of fighting rather than the building of peace. And that's where women comes important. So they are dismissed. Our voices are dismissed. One of the ways that I at least notice that it could shift a little bit is when you take the women's stories from the only emotional story and only the victim story and women are we are strong in our emotions and also the victim story exists 80 percent of refugees worldwide in the world are women and children most women do face all kinds of atrocities in war women predominantly face rape in war there's a lot these are all true facts but that's not the only facts about us. And that's, we are as cornered in our image as victims as men are cornered in their images as the oppressor. And neither are full, you know. It's there are wonderful men out there. And, and, and women are not only victims, you know. Um, so how do we shift this? Now, one of the things that we've experimented with is when we survey, when we start taking women's voices from the grassroots, because by the way, the disconnections between women at the grassroots and women at the elite level is very possible and often happens. 
though the grassroots and the Arab Spring and the Arab Revolutions has proven, in my opinion, that the grassroots is sort of the, 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 the foundation of change, basically. So it's not to be dismissed. And I believe we are living in the era of the streets, you know. Um, so how do we transfer the women's voices from that of just, you know, uh, from especially women at the grassroots to political one? And the way we did it is by surveying them on political issues. You know, so we started with a survey in Iraq, but then we do in Afghanistan and Congo, and there's a long way to improve. But basically we asked women not about children issue only, though we do, or women's issues only, but we really asked them about their prime ministers and their presidents and the constitution and the military and the economy and the men's topics. You know, the newspapers' topics. Um, because women are not asked these questions. Women are only asked about what we think about children, health, and education. You know, we're not asked about the other things, at least in, in the part of the world that, and when it comes to war. And so when we did that, and we, and we summarized the result in a very strategic way, then, and this is, I'm just using personal experience, as a group, as a leader of a group called Women for Women, you can imagine the jokes I have encountered from politicians, particularly in the countries we work in. Oh, women for women, why not women for men, men for women? I mean, it's like, I know the jokes, and it's, it gets really bad also, you can imagine. Um, but then when I say, okay, Mr. Prime Minister or whoever, um, but I have a survey and let me tell you what the women in your country are saying about you. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and honestly, honestly, almost all the times it's like, um, okay, what I want to see. And so you shift the debate. You shift the language also. You know? And that's what I'm interested in is that, that we don't have to only present the issue in the emotional victim issue. Imagine if you present it in the political, you know, leadership issues. These women's voices are very important. They have very particular demands of you. And by the way, we did that at the prime minister level, but we also did that with countries like Congo, with the military commanders and the chief and the mayor. When you present women's issues as these are constituents who can actually get you out of office if you don't pay attention to them, then you change the dynamics of how you treat them with respect, the respect we simply deserve. Are you seeing those changes showing up in legislation, in policy levels, or simply in how well those laws that already do exist are being enforced? I personally think that the last few decades, women have focused a lot on legislative changes. Um, all over the world. And I, I think really the work is not legislative changes, though there is room for plenty and there is room for a lot. Where I put my attention in and interest in is really their implementation. And even before their implementation, for the people to actually know about them. Yeah, because often you make wonderful changes uh, let's talk Congo, for example. Rape is prosecuted as a crime in Congo, but on average, not many, you know, uh, perpetrators go to prison, you know, in Congo. Um, there are many. So there are lots of changes happen on the political elite level, but it didn't happen at the grassroots. Now, there are a few good experiences. One is of Rwanda. Rwanda, as you may know, um, 55% currently of their parliament are women. It's one of the best countries in terms of representation of women. And they had a lot of changes in their constitution. 
they simplified the language of the Constitution in a booklet with cartoonish images and very, very simple language, and they made that booklet available to every single person. And they summarized it for women, particularly on all the issues that apply to them. Usually, family law impacts us the most. Inheritance, custody, marriage, divorce, um, ownership, all of these things. These are where women get restricted or given rights, you know. So they translated that and they simplified it and they made it accessible to everyone. Then the work becomes about how do you actually help activate it. Um, and that's, for me, where the, the, the work needs to be done much more of. And when it happens, then it's, it's fantastic. And there is a woman in our program in Congo, and she learned in the process of this program that she has inheritance right. But her husband died like 20 years ago, and her in-laws took everything. Um, so she saved up some of the money that's through the program, hired a lawyer, sued the in-laws, and got her home back and opened a store out of one of the rooms. And so she earned, she now has a living. So it's, it wasn't that the law cheated her out, it's she did not know. And so I actually really believe that knowledge is as important as access to resources. And that in the case of women, what we need to have is much more on the work on the knowledge work. Now in the case of the Congo, you see that as a really pivotal country for focusing on these issues. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing along with the Clinton Global Initiative about Congo. Well, I see Congo as the most pivotal issue because to quote Hans Rosling, a scientist, a Swedish scientist, who basically talk about how the world is shifting in our economy. You know, that the Western world is sort of the founding fathers of the modern capitalist economy that is prospering. Then there is the emerging market that is coming and joining it uh, in, in the future. And, you know, and he basically divides the world into those who have uh, cars or buildings, uh, no, planes, you know, the Western economy, those who have cars, they're going to shift to those who have p- planes. Those who have bicycles, they're going to shift to those who have cars. And he's worried, and I share his worry, about those who don't have bicycles but who are still even cooking with firewood. And he's like, if you want to save the world, the others are doing well. They are, you know, they're moving along the line. If you want to save the world, save Congo. Because it's one of the worst places on earth. In Afghanistan, I would add. Because literally women still go to the forest and collect charcoal and come and cook with it. You know, literally. And I, I was in... So that's, I'll bring it why I was in Congo a few months, a couple of months ago with Ashley Judd and a group of Clinton Global Initiative um, leaders. It's a group of leaders selected by President Clinton um, from different sectors, and we decided together to come and work on Congo. Um, so we took a group, all of us went, half of us went actually. It was Ashley Judd, Jeff Gordon, uh, Myron. Um, Myron, I forgot your last name. He's a very famous football star. Um, um, anyway, the, a group of uh, people went to Congo. And, and I really, honestly, it was for the first time, and I've been going there for so long, but thanks to Ashley, we saw women literally carrying loads, about 50 
pounds of charcoal on their backs. This is still happening today. And so we got out of the car, and I've always seen this woman, I always talked to them, but this time we carried it to see how heavy it is. And you, it's so heavy, and these are children. Some of them are children with them, nine-year-old, eight-years-old, carrying it, and they're, you can't actually stand up. You have to like go parallel to, to the ground to, in order to be able to carry this load. And so it is a place, it's still the wretched of earth, basically. It's a place where hundreds of thousands of women are still getting raped. It is a place that is rich and should not suffer through what is suffering. It is about our just political will to stop that war in there. It is about proper investment in the country so we can bring prosperity. And I just really, to quote Hans Rosling, if you want to save the world, save Congo. And I would add, and Afghanistan, these are the two worst places on earth. And I can't see us progressing with those who have bicycles and cars and buses and, and planes if we forget about those who are still going to the forest and cutting the woods and making it into a charcoal to cook. Now, Afghanistan is another special situation, and you have had programs there for a while, but there's a, a particular situation arising now as there's discussion of peace negotiations. Who's going to be included in those peace negotiations and what compromises might be made, particularly on women's rights, in order to achieve peace, meaning an end to the fighting, not necessarily meaning a beginning of a normal life. What do you see happening in Afghanistan with women's rights? I'm very scared. And it's more than scared. I'm very sad because I think we are betraying Afghan women. Um, You see, I believe that women are bellwether to the directions of the society. Um, Violence often starts with women and progress often starts with women. And compromises, political compromises, often start with women. It's just women. And that goes back, I know it as back as British history in India. Uh, one of the worst laws in India and Bangladesh and Pakistan actually were brought by the British time. You know, It's, it's a historical, it's consistent, including most recently an American invasion of Iraq. It's very consistent. Religious leaders want the private sphere. They want the control of the private sphere. So, I, And the private sphere is usually defined with women. It is women who carry honor and heritage and the family and all of these things. And so the regulations of that means usually the regulation of family law. And that has to do with mobility, uh, access to resources, um, choices, Basically, all the things that, uh, again, marriage, divorce, inheritance, custody, right to study, all of these things. These are family law issues. And usually, the more, actually, it's the secular who abandons more, you know, who's like, I want free market, I want free trade, I want all of these things. And that's the trading card always, always, is we give you a private sphere, we take the free market or the free trade or whatever it is. I don't care. Um, I mean, whatever it is. And so what we miss on this trade is that it simply starts with women. They actually, it's this, it's, you know, I call us, we are like the soft part of the skin when, you know, some diseases enter through the cell, no one pays attention to it. Or we are like the kitchen door, at least back home in Iraq, there is a kitchen door and the formal guest room, guest, uh, guest uh, door, and when people enter through the kitchen door, is informal. 
So it's not uh, paid attention to as opposed to people when they enter to the main door. It's a formal guests, you know you. Um, we are like the kitchen door. When it enters anyway. So what's happening to Afghanistan is when the Taliban's are saying, and they are saying, and they do have it on their list, that all the compromises they want on women's issues. And you do have a lot of the international community, as well as Afghans, who are saying, it's just women. I, I, I actually talked to an Afghan advisor to President Karzai who said, look, women are going to have to compromise. But don't worry, it's not so much. It's just their mobility and their appearances. And I wanted to shoot myself because I was like, how do you know what, how does it, how, I mean, you never wore a burqa, have you? You know, or you haven't been told you cannot go to school or you cannot go to, to work. So how do you know it's not so much, you know? But I equally heard this from American senators, you know, who said maybe it's irreconcilable. The rights of women in Islam is just, so it's too much. It's just, we, we don't have hope that it can be concilable in Afghanistan. You know, some different statement to the same end. And so I hear this and I see on the political sphere the sort of, it's not reconciled. And I go to Afghanistan and I was in Afghanistan last March and I met this woman, Zarkuna, who was promised to be married at the age of six, uh, got married at the age of 15, was a widow and a single mother at the age of 16, um, was beaten up by, it, by the Taliban during the Taliban time by a whip for wearing an open shoes. And in the middle of that beating, she grabs the whip from the Talib and take it and throw it. And I'm like, how, what happened in your, what, like, what got you, what got, what got you the courage? And she said, it wasn't the pain of the beating, but it was the humiliation that someone was beating me. A human being was beating another human being. That was what got me to stop him. But anyway, this woman, Zarkona, comes to our program with nothing, nothing. She's completely, utterly poor. She learns about her rights. She has vocation skills. Actually, happens to be embroidery and tailoring. But she, <laughs> wait, let me tell you a story. But she, you know, got out. We she was so good. We hired her because we have a partnership with Kate Spade. So actually, in this case, it's really good because they embroider things for Kate Spade. But anyway, so they got out. She got out. We hired her. She take she took a loan. She starts a business. Long story short, this woman has $30,000 in her bank account. She just bought a machine for $18,000. She's employing 150 people. This was five, this, I just met her five years ago. She entered our program. And always she said, oh, when I talk with her, she said, I just want stability in Afghanistan so I can continue to grow my business. <laughs> you know? And, and it makes sense, right? She needs stability so she can continue to grow her business. She's hiring 150 people. Her daughter is going to college and she's going back to school. And I see her and I feel we are betraying her. Because they, she, and many other women did their part. They stood up. They stood up. They went to school. They run for parliaments. They run for president. They did their part. And I feel if we're not gonna make sure to protect their rights, and we don't. And if we really believe it's written, and we really believe that it's important, that if we compromise on their rights, we are going to compromise on the larger peace in Afghanistan, and it will hit us back here again. Then I feel a huge, uh, sad, very sad. And there's another country where that's a risk, and that's Iraq. It's a country that's very personal to you. You lived there for 19 years before coming to the states. 
What do you see different about working in your own country than in the other places where you've worked? <laughs> I love my country. And it's been the hardest country to work in as well. It's the most dangerous country. Not the hardest because of Iraqis. It's just been the most dangerous country, actually, believe it or not, to work in because it's unpredictable. Because you don't know when the bomb is going to explode. And the other countries you actually can know. You know, sort of you avoid this street or this street. In this one, you just don't know. So, um, I... It breaks my heart what happened to Iraq. It's everything. It's destroyed. It's destroyed. It's just everything in, about my life has been destroyed. And it's uh, the house that I grew up in and that was built the year I was born. My parents called it, their, I brought the blessing by building the house. You know, so they, it's, it's my blessing, uh, according to them. Um, Six years ago uh, or five years ago, it became an execution center. Um, and then a brothel, and my dad called me saying, it's a brothel now. It's like, dad, at least they're having sex instead of, you know, killing each other, you know. You know but it's horrible because trafficked women go through horror, horror. So it's horrible, and prostituted women go through horror often. So, um, and then became a military base, and then when they released it, uh, a year ago, actually, I went to see it, and it's stripped of everything. And I only tell the story because that's how I feel about Iraq. It's stripped everything. You know, the house had a garden surrounding it, and the garden is absolutely dead. Nothing in it. Even the electric wires are taken from the house, and I feel that's Iraq. So it's destroyed, and there's a sense of it's just the unfairness of what happened. Um, and as my aunt said, she said, we, she said, America destroyed and we destroyed. Um, we have our own part to share and America has its own part of, to share. And I agree with her. And I think also that I reached that stage in which the only hope I have in Iraq is through Iraqis. I went from a time of being, saying, no, we can't you know, lobbying and talking with American politicians that we cannot leave Iraq, not in terms of military, but in terms of development and infrastructure and all of these things. We, just, we helped destroy the country and we need to rebuild again. It's like someone going to your home and destroying it and leaving. And so it's like, you know, we chose to go to Iraq. You know, we're not invited to go to Iraq. We chose to go to Iraq and the country is destroyed and we need to help rebuild it. And at this point, I have no faith, honestly. I, th I think America sort of abandons its responsibility towards Iraq. Um, but I'm not willing to wait either, you know, for America to claim its responsibilities towards Iraq. So I feel I have more hope in Iraq than I do in Afghanistan, to be, to be very honest. It has, it, the country has more resources. It's about Iraqis shaping up and waking up and getting our own job done. But, but I have more hope in Iraq because it has resources, because, it's, because we still have educated people in it, because we still have things going for us. And, and shame on us if we just stand still and not do anything. Where are the women being successful there? In Iraq? Well, you have a wonderful warrior in here uh, who keeps it going, you know. Um, I think women are successful all the time in all these countries, uh, honestly, including Iraq. Um, by they, 
they honestly keep life going. I'm not exaggerating. Um, you know, that's a very, very personal story, but it's a story I hear nevertheless all over the time. Um, you know, my mom, during the war, she would say that my dad would cry and just say, the country is destroyed, the country is destroyed. And it was my mom who would go and run and get the vegetables and get the fruits and all of that. Uh, recently, a couple of years ago, I was in Gaza. And I met and I stayed with a family where the husband is an artist. Um, he's a painter. And they were telling me that in the two hours of uh, ceasefire they had during the walk, during the war, he would go to his um, uh, studio and paint beautiful, beautiful, intense painting. And she would go and collect the flowers from all the neighbors and they bake as much bread as possible so every neighbor has, I don't know, a stack of bread to survive in case there is no ceasefire tomorrow. I'm not comparing. This is not bad or good. This is not worse or better. But it is women Oh, their strength is by keeping life going. Unfortunately, it's not accredited or respected, but no different than women's work is not credited or respected in this country. Our household work, our cleaning, our cooking, our all of these things. Now, in this country, more men are doing it, which is really good, you know. Um, but this is recent also, you know. But this is not credited. As most society don't credit women's work, it's the same in war. And war, what is war? War is a microcosm of what happens in peace. It's just a more intense experience. That's all what it is. So it shows us life and death in the same day. And, and you meet it every day. It's raw. But, it's, but the same feelings and the same experiences that happens in peace happens in war. It's just we see it more intensely in war. Now, in Iraq, you're dealing with this particular situation with the religious differences, and you write in your book about feeling those differences for the first time when the Iranian-Iraqi war began. Um, How do you build bridges between religious groups through the work that you've done? Well, there are many ways to answer this question. First of all, I think, particularly in Iraq, because we have Sunni Shia issues, but I would extend that to any two groups of people who are fighting, whether it's in India with Hindus and Muslims or whatever, you know. It's no different than the essence of my answer to Iraq. I really believe we need to forgive even when not asked for forgiveness. And I think it's a very hard thing to do that. Very hard thing to do. But unless we do it, I don't see how we can move forward. In other words, I can wait as an Iraqi for America to be aware (laughs) and ask for forgiveness. Or I just forgive because I can't be captured in that story anymore and I need to move on. Or the Sunni Shias, which we repeat a story that is 1,400 years ago, literally every single year we repeat it, you know or Hindu Muslims, or whatever it is, you know, Muslim Jews, or whatever it is, you name it. There we all fight each other. We like it for some reason, you know. Unless we learn, in other words, whatever the group of people who are impacted, I don't care who it is in this case, unless we learn to forgive even when not ask for forgiveness, it's very hard to shape it. Otherwise, we are stuck in the story, and that applies to women as well, by the way we will be stuck in the story and we need to change the narrative. So that's first. 
And the second thing, in my experience, particularly as a women's rights person, when I work with religious folks, and you have to work with religious leaders, um, I learned that, and I'm really a big advocate of changing the narrative from that of culture to that of practical solutions, and that is the economy. When you go about a person and you go into attacking their culture or religious values, then there's a defensiveness. And I mean, I, I'm telling you as a Muslim woman also who is from the other part of the world, I hate calling it the third world, it's just different really. We, the good and the bad and the ugly exist, it's just different, you know. Um, it, it's just like, you're like, oh my God, I can't understand one more attack on Islam and women, you know. It's like, ugh. But so, it, not that there isn't issue, but there is issues with all religions. It's more like you get attacked, attacked, attacked. And as Amartya Sen, the Nobel Prize economist who wrote actually about identity, he says when you narrow people into one identity and you dismiss all their other identity and you tell them you are horrible, 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 they become horrible because you narrow them down to that one single identity and you leave them no room to say, I'm also a doctor and I'm also a painter and I'm also a religious fanatic and I'm also whatever, you know? So, so when it comes for me to issues of religion and women particularly, my attitude about it is that we don't start with the women and religion and culture, but we start with practical solutions. So I give you an example of the strategy and my attitude in, at large. I was in Iraq in that same province, Karbala, very religious. I had to cover head to toe, all of these things. And I had my Iraqi colleagues with me and we wanted the permission to work in the province. So the mayor accepted and the governor and all the government officials accepted. And at the end they said, oh, but you must get uh, the approval of the tribal sheikh. I don't know. Um, so I go to the tribal sheikh and he, he senses that I'm the leader, even though my Iraqi colleagues are there and he's just like picks on me and he said picking on my identity who are you who's your father what tribe are you from are you he can't ask me it's impolite for us to ask are you senior shia but you you ask the family which part of baghdad are you from where are you living i can sense from your accent you're living abroad right now you live in america you know it's like and every answer i'm answering him is wrong in his dictionary, wrong, wrong. My father was Saddam Hussein's pilot. It's horrible, you know. I live in America, horrible. I mean, it's like all bad, 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 you know. And I was like, I'm not going to get the deal to work in, Iraq, in this province to help the women there because of my own identity. But the point is, I'm telling the story is because I said, okay, look, I know I'm failing. So let me tell you what I'm going to do, what I do, what I'm here for. And if you don't agree with that, then I might as well go because I know I'm not fitting the picture in here. And I, all what I want to do is work with widows. And in this case, the Iraq has about one million widows, and, but vulnerable women too, you know. And I really, I have a program that is one year teaching them vocational skills and get them jobs. And I sort of just, you know, did not highlight too much that we do also rights awareness educational training, <laughs> but I said it comes with an educational program. <laughs> in other, but, it's, but the most important thing in this case was jobs. And this man, the sheikh, this traditional guy who did not like that, who I am, the westernized person, he's like two minutes of that, and he says, bless you. And he said, women are like a broken wing to a bird. 
and a bird can never fly if one of his wings are broken. So God bless you, go work with them. And all of a sudden, my identity and who I am and my background and all of that was irrelevant because there was practical solutions. And when I was in Afghanistan in March, I met with 20 religious leaders, tribal leaders, all old and the turban and the beard and the whole thing, you know? And I was sitting with them. The only woman was sitting with them except for my colleague and having serious discussions from rights of women of education to domestic violence to rape to Taliban to all kinds of things. And they treated me with respect as much as I treated them with respect. But the line of entry or the the starting point is practical, not attacking on religious or culture. Religion, as a South African saying goes, is water, is not stone. It moves, or culture, sorry, culture is water, not stone. It moves, it evolves, it changes, it's whatever. And so we can't start from that point. We have to start with practical. And the least resistance I got is from poor men. They, you know, usually they say, we're so hungry. If you want to help us, help, help our wives get jobs, please. You know, and this is more recently in, in Rwanda I had that discussion. So, so I personally have think that be practical first and provide practical solutions to people. And then you can go into the more sensitive solutions. But only after... You build trust and a foundation of trust and an honest and sincere respect and not coming at it from, you are horrible and I'm going to save your woman. Thank you, Zainab. We have a question from the live chat room that's going on. We're streaming this event uh, live so it can be viewed anywhere in the world. Um, What do you envision for the organization in the future? As you're stepping away from it a little bit, you have other ideas of what you could be doing, what the organization could be doing. Let's start for the future of Women for Women International and then talk about what you see for your future. Uh, Well, Women for Women International is a very clear trajectory. I wouldn't have left now if I, uh, or wouldn't have stepped down as a CEO if I didn't think that it's in a very clear trajectory. We have a very clear program. We have a very clear mission, amazing, wonderful team, especially overseas. Um, And what needs is just to grow (laughs) and serve more women. Um, so it, it's, it's exciting to see people who are exciting about growing it and improving this and improving that. But you have the templates, you know, and it's just now go and, and, and serve more. Um, so it's, I, I feel a, a great level of comfort where, for where it is, you know, and I'll continue being part of it, of course. It's part of, it's like having my baby who's 18 years old, literally. Uh, uh, very much so. Um, as for me, I really... I, I, when I came to America, I was almost 20, 19. This year, I'm 21 in America and 20 in Iraq, basically, you know, and so it's, it's almost half of my life in here, tipped over in America. I just honestly feel with the Arab revolutions, there is so much hope. I have so much hope in the Arab world. You see, the fear we had is so hard to explain. It's so hard to explain. And for all these people, for all the young people and the old people to have gone to the streets and rebelled and screamed, I have chills whenever I hear their chants. You know, the people were demanding with courage, you know, and, and it was about life. About, it wasn't about, it was about 
dignified life. People wanted jobs and a dignified life, you know. And and women took part of it. And you know, we are danger, of course. Always, women always go back in the front, and then they are pushed back. So I feel there is a huge window of hope, and I really, really want to. If if what I've done in the last twenty years of my life was focusing on building this big bridge between the Western world and conflict areas. I'm coming to the realization that the small bridges is, are equally important. Um, and the small bridges between us as individuals, all the small bridges between you know, people from the same region, Egyptians and Iraqis, Jordanians and Palestinians, and I don't know, Yemenis and Moroccan, but, and, and Indians and Iraqis and Malaysians and Lebanese. And, you know, it's like, it's that other part of the, and Africa, sorry. And my sisters in Kenya and Congo and Rwanda and mm, Mozambique and in the, the, the bridges between us. We have focused so much on the bridge between the Western world and the, the other part of the world, which is valid and important and to be continued. And I feel we need to have small bridges because there is so much more to share between us. And perhaps it's easier to create shift when it's coming with our own images. So that's what I want to focus on. Well, we wish you all the best as you move forward. It's an exciting time of transition for you, for Women for Women International, and uh, for our women peacemakers as well. Um, I'm very excited that you've had a chance to link with them, and I know that you'll be marching forward with many of them and their activities in the future. Thank you, Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.